Well, we didn't have church last week. I ended up just being my call. I didn't get a whole lot of uh, input. What's that? It's <laughs> not the same thing, especially with Melchizedek. We're not going to try anything like that. But um, I just didn't like some of our folks coming from further away. I just didn't know what the conditions of the road were going to be on your way home. So we uh, aired on that one. When that temperature drops down so cold at night, I think I've told you before, but as, li- as uh, conservative as I am on canceling a Sunday morning service, it's because the roads are always going to get better as the sun comes out. Anything goes on at nighttime, the roads are going to get worse as the sun goes down. And that's uh, always my, my care on, the, on that part. But anyway, last, last week on Tuesday, I started working on this stuff and spent most of the day on Tuesday working on it and spent most of the day on Wednesday working on it. Even after we closed the service up, I still kept working on it, <laughs> trying to get stuff down on this thing. Then I'd started this morning and started the whole process over again. <laughs> went right back to the beginning and run, went over all the stuff again and just uh, meditated on some more and, and trying to get everything out um, to, to help us out with, with this part. And I'll tell you what, I told you, Tuesday last week, Wednesday last week, and then all day today, I mean all day today. I started early this morning. I took a little bit of time off for a run in the afternoon and then right back at it and just, just going. And don't you know, it wasn't until about an hour, and two hours before the service, I saw something completely new <laughs> that I hadn't even seen before. So I don't know if I'll tell you about it when we get to that spot, but it's in here. <laughs> We did put it in here. As I look up Genesis chapter 14, and uh, I always like to look at through the years when, how often it is we, we go over this, we hardly ever have covered this section of Scripture. We have covered it, but not to the, to the depth that we're going to do it tonight. So if we're going to get into Hebrews chapter 7, which is Melchizedek, the first thing we need to do is to go back to the beginning and see where Melchizedek came on the scene before we can even delve into the, the stuff that's in Hebrews. So in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 1, And it came to pass in the days of Amphrophel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, Ketaloamor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the salt sea. Twelve years they served Shadalomar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketalomar and the kings, I pronounced that wrong before, it is pronounced like a K. Ketalomar and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Kerneum, and Zozim in Ham, and Emim in Shabbat of Terethim. Isn't this fun? And the Horites in the mountains of Seir, as far as El Param, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hezazan, Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Abela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Ketaloamar, king of Elam, title king of nations. So, oh, it's very important for that we give this list again, huh? <laughs> Amraphel, king, 
king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled in the mountains. Then they took all the, go- the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Now the invaders, I looked each one of them up to find out where were they from. And I also looked at the people they attacked to find out where they were from. And I have a map, but I didn't bring it, bring it over to put it up there for you. But it's not a big deal. You can kind of figure out where this is. is it, uh, it took me a long while to find a map that actually had these things on it. I did find it. And I had it ready for last week, and I forgot that I had it ready, and I didn't bring it over. So if I think about it next week, I'll, I'll try and do that. But the, the invaders are basically, these are the ones that are invading, are basically from the areas of Chaldea and Persia. So the empires are going to become the Chaldean Empire, and the empire that's going to become the Persian Empire. These are where these guys come from. But at this time, they are very small nation states. They will become much larger and they'll become empire type type things, but right now they're they're not. Now Amraphel, king of Shinar, some I think I had to pull this out of your outline. I think I just have the king's names there. You can write down whatever you want to about these guys. Some associate him with a name you are very familiar with. Hammurabi. Some historians associate this king with being the same person as Hammurabi. Of course, he's the founder of the centralized kingdom of Babylon and the, uh, making the capital city of that Babylon. <clears throat> uh, others associate him with Nimrod. Now, of course, Nimrod was, uh, I guess, around that time frame too, the Tower of Babel and all that we have the, with Nimrod. That's in um, Genesis, just a few chapters before. But some say he was, he was there. Uh, I put a little quote in here. Um, some say Amraphel was his real name and he was called Nimrod, the chief rebel as leader of the tower builders who led the world into rebellion against heaven's ruler. Others say that Nimrod was his real name and he was called Amraphel as the one who commanded them to cast Abraham into the fire. So it is possible that he could have been Nimrod. It is possible that he could have been Hammurabi. I don't know. I'm not telling you that definitely he was. I'm just saying that there are historians out there who this is their, they make their livelihood out of this and they studied it out and they, they see that he could be one of those two people. Uh, Arioch, this is the king of uh, Eliser, who was the, uh, basically a confederate with Ketalomar. Title, and in, in your translation it says King of Nations. If you have the King James or the New King James, it's going to say King of Nations. Now here's the thing with that. That can either be king of nations because that particular Hebrew word can mean nations, peoples, or, or uh, ethnic groups. That's what that particular word can mean. It can also be referring, and some feel it's more this way, as a territory of Goyim. And then, of course, we have the last one, which is Ketalomar, and I put the uh, pronunciation for you in there. All, this, all these kings come from what is basically going to be known as King of the North Territory. That's just for you end times people. They're not from King of the South. They're not come from um, any of the other kings that are in there. You know, there's North, South, uh, and, and the other two kings that were in there in the Macedonian area and uh, things. They're, they're not from any of those areas. They are only from King of the North Territory. Now, I only bring that up because in the, in the end, it's the King of the North 
that does a lot of the battles against Israel. And then after the king of the north comes Antichrist kingdom, which is predominantly in the king of the north territory. So here we had the king of the north territory rising up against Israel and taking Lot as a prisoner. That's what we'll pick up here in verse 12. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the turban trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Anir, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. Now they're giving, you know, the area of Dan, they're, they're giving locations that, of course, come much later. But Genesis is not written at the time of Abraham. It's written at a time much later, so he's giving landmarks according to the time when they live. And, um, you know, Moses, he's, he's, uh, he's the author here. He's the one who's writing all this stuff down for us. So he's given it as far as where people will know in his day and age. So that's, uh, that helps us out with that part because I, I believe, I don't think the Dead Sea was actually a Dead Sea until after uh, uh, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, if I recall correctly. That's, uh, that's what causes it to be the Dead Sea. But it's already, he's already calling it the Dead Sea and referring to the salts and, and things. Well, that's because it's written at a much later time, and by that point it had become the Dead Sea. But at this time, it was one of the watered plain states, and which is what drew, drew Lot out to them, was they were so well watered and all the things that were going on there. It's not going to have this effect for some time. So after the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, then that uh, changed that whole area. Basically, it cut off the Dead Sea from having an outlet, and so all they did was have water coming in, and it would just evaporate. So what you would have then is the Dead Sea became bigger until the surface area grew to the point where it could evaporate at the same rate the water was coming in. Therefore, salt was being pumped in but not being able to evaporate out and uh, became the Dead Sea. So if you're wondering why are we getting these kind of landmarks in here, this is, this is why. He's not narrating this from the day that it happened. He's narrating this from the day it is written. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother. Did, would I leave off? Did I jump ahead too far? Okay, so he brought back all, his, all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the woman and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after he, his return from the defeat of Ketelomar and the kings who were with him. So let's go over this. We had five kings who rose up in defense of themselves against four kings. And these four kings had already gone out and listed a number of the nations that they had conquered. And when they conquered the nations, they did the same thing to them that they did to Sodom and Gomorrah. They took all their stuff. They took some of the people. They took some of the things that they liked. They had, you know, going to make them into slaves. And they did that with Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot ended up being one of the ones that they took. So this is the same thing they had done in these other places. So they're making this sweep and they're picking up all this stuff. So before they ever got to Sodom and Gomorrah, they had picked up a lot of stuff. They had all the stuff they brought with them. Then they had the stuff they took from Sodom and Gomorrah. If they hit any places after Sodom and Gomorrah, which we're not told that they did, but if they did, then they would have, of course, added it to the pot of stuff that they had. So Lot hears about it. And once he hears, I don't think he cared too much that Sodom and Gomorrah were, <laughs> were attacked. But once he heard that his 
his uh, nephew was in that group. He said, all right, we're going to do something about this. And so he takes his 318 trained servants, not soldiers, to go up against five kings who have five armies who had already defeated four kings and their armies and doesn't think twice about it, just picks up and goes. And we're not given a whole lot. I mean, wouldn't you like to know what happened in this battle? <laughs> this is one of those ones we're going to go back to the videotape when we get to heaven. You know, show me that battle. How did 318 guys defeat five kings? And it, to Abraham, it's just, it's just a matter of fact thing. You know, I went up there, took care of those guys, and uh, we came on back. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a big deal. He just uh, went out there and did it. And uh, he's no spring chicken. You know, when he starts on all this journey, he's about 75 years old. So I'm not sure uh, how much of the battle he fought, but he had to be one of the guys involved in the battle. I don't think he's just a general being back there and directing all this stuff, but boy, that'd be something to find out. What, I mean, obviously God did something here and God acted. We're just not told anything about what happened. Kind of unusual how that is. All the other battles that go on in Scripture, all the ones that Israel went through in the wilderness and we're told all the details of the battle, how it was laid out, how God defeated the enemy, and this one, nothing. Nothing at all. But he comes out. Now, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh after his return from the defeat of Ketaloamar and the kings who were with him. Now, when he first, when this king hears that Abraham's going out against them, I'm sure he doesn't think anything about it. What are you going to do with your 318 trained servants against these five kings and just wiped out my armies? But he, he goes out there to, to meet him. Why is he going out there to meet him? Well, he's got a, he, he wants to get some stuff. So I put in your outline this. The king of Sodom came to Abraham to get something. He wants to get something. Now, in the end, uh, if you remember the story, he wants to get his people back. And he said, you can keep the stuff. He wants to get his people back. But he came out to meet Abram to get stuff. Verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God's most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, <coughs> possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And that's the story of Melchizedek. That's it. One, two, three verses. Three verses in the Old Testament. And, and here, one more verse will come up in Psalms. I believe it's Psalms 110 and verse 4. I believe it is. We're not going to get into that one tonight. But that's it. Four verses total in the Old Testament for this guy. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, I have so much on this guy and you just, you can't take it. <laughs> so the king of Sodom came to Abram to get something. Melchizedek came to Abram to give a blessing. Melchizedek didn't come out to, to meet Abram to get anything from him. He came out to give a blessing. Now it says Melchizedek is a king. According to the ways of men, I am not saying that this is the way of God. I'm saying this is the way of men. I'm not saying that God has a problem with it. God laid it out for Israel that this is the way it would be. But according to the ways of men, kings, once they come to a throne, it is their sons 
who come and, and reign next. That's how the, the kings work. The son of the king is the next one up. You may get a good son. You may get a bad son. And God was trying to warn them about that, that once you go into a kingship for, 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 for a, a ruler, that, that's how it works. Now, in this day and age, we still have some, some kings. We still have the royal family over there in Great Britain. You know, the mother country, I guess. And, you know, that's why we rebelled. We didn't like the uh, King George that came up and the things he was doing. We thought that was a bad king. And so we didn't like those things. And so we decided to rebel against that particular king. Um, but that's how it works. And that's how it has continued to work there is the, the son comes in. Now, they've changed the system around a little bit. And I guess the king and queen have certain authority, but then there's the prime minister and then there's other things and there's some elected officials. I, I don't know Great Britain's political system all that well. I know a little bit about it. Uh, don't know a whole lot about it. I'm, I remember some of the people that came up, up from there. Um, uh, they just made a movie about the, the guy, uh, Churchill. Uh, he seemed like a pretty good guy. He was the prime minister, I believe, right? Not the king, and you can see the certain authority he had. And then, of course, um, more in our, our day and age, Margaret Thatcher. Boy, she was something, wasn't she? <laughs> oh, boy, I tell you what, I've, I've heard some of her addresses to Parliament. And I'll tell you what, she was a fireball. <laughs> I just loved listening to some of her stuff that she would, she would throw out there. Because, you know, they, they have the same battle over there, conservative and, and liberal. And she was definitely one of the conservative ones that we would consider I don't know if they switched the terminology and I think one of the countries does. They switched terminology and what would be a conservative for us as a liberal for them and vice versa. Um, I think that's for one of the countries. But anyway, she came on out there and uh, the, um, the liberal mindset did not like Margaret Thatcher that much. But boy, she was, uh, she was a great ally for uh, Ronald Reagan and the things that they did together against the Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain and bringing that thing down was uh, just tremendous. But anyway, it's not all ruled by the king the way that it once was. But we have an idea of what that's, that's like. We have the royal family. And, of course, a lot of people here are enamored with the royal family. That I, the only thing I know about the royal family is that our star quarterback looks like the son. <laughs> that is all I know about the royal family. I don't remember which son it is. I've just seen the pictures. Second son? Yeah, I just Carson Wentz over here. And what was it, Harry? Harry over here, and they do look a lot alike. <laughs> wow. <laughs> North Dakota, Great Britain. So <laughs> I'm not sure how that, that all works, but we can understand how, how it works here. So uh, a lot is made of the fact that Melchizedek didn't have any um, uh, mother or father, as it talk about in Hebrews. Remember that scripture? He had no uh, uh, beginning or end. And some people try and attribute that Melchizedek is a type of the Lord, or is a manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ in that he had appeared many times in the Old Testament. They just see this as another time that Jesus Christ showed up in the Old Testament. That is false. There is absolutely no possibility of truth to that statement. And if you've ever heard anything about Melchizedek being Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, throw it out. It holds absolutely no water at all. The only time Jesus Christ became a man is when he was born on this earth and became Jesus. Every single other time he came, he came as an angel of the Lord. He came as something supernatural. The only time he came as a man was when he came as Jesus. And don't ever confuse that. If, if, if we do, then we start messing with all kinds of, of crazy things. 
All that it's saying is in a book of genealogies where Moses lists all the genealogies in chapter 5 and in chapter 10. How many of y'all know those are your favorite ones to read through? All the genealogies that are there. In a book that has all these genealogies, there's not a single mention of the genealogy of Melchizedek. But it calls Melchizedek in this, this chapter that he is the king of Salem. The only way you can become a king is if you are born into a royal family. So that would mean that his father was a king. And he took over being kingship when his father died. And his son, supposing that he has one, would become king in his place when Melchizedek died. All it's saying is there's no record of him having a mom and a dad. And there's no record of him having been born or no record of him having died. It does not say that he didn't do those things. It just said there's no record of it. And it kind of brings that into a, a, a type of Jesus. So Melchizedek can certainly be a type of Jesus, but he is not Jesus Christ in the flesh. He is a man. And uh, that's just uh, one of those things you have to keep in mind because otherwise it's, it can be a problem. But royalty comes by birth. So he was born into a royal family, but it also calls him a priest. So he is the first, and as far as we know, in the word of God anyway, he is the only one who was both a king and a priest. Now a priest, the priesthood comes by commission or by appointment. You are appointed to the office of priest. Aaron was appointed to the office of high priest. And then the sons of Aaron would come up, and when the high priest would die, they would come and they would appoint another one. And uh, one of the other sons would come in and they would be appointed. And different ones, that we, we had different ones. Eleazar was, was a high priest. Um, I think it was Zadok. I think he was uh, one of the high priests that was in there. And the other names that, that were there during Jesus' day. Of course, we still have the high priest role. Different ones were appointed. So you are appointed to the, to the um, office of priest, but you are born into the office of a king. So Melchizedek was royalty because of his birth and was priest because of an appointment. Now, there are no animals mentioned for sacrifice, but that's one of the jobs of a priest is to bring animal sacrifices. Now, there's plenty around because Abraham just went up and conquered these five kings, took all their stuff. I mean, all the livestock that they had collected. They collected from all those cities, states that were named before. They got all their money and got all their stuff and then they were hauling out around where they were going. So they had plenty of animals for a sacrifice, but no sacrifice is mentioned in that section of Scripture. Let's read it again. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and he was the priest of God's Most High. This is, this is not a false priest. This is not a priest of some other religion. This is the priest of God Most High. Abraham is not the only born-again person, so to speak. <laughs> of course, they don't get born again until the New Testament. But he's not the only one who serves God. Melchizedek, the king and high priest of Salem, apparently is as well, which means there's probably other people in the city that did. Don't know how many or... Whether the whole city, did, we don't know any of that. We just know that Melchizedek was one. You don't need a high priest if you don't have anybody who's serving God. So there's obviously some of the people around there who did. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed by, 
God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So there's no animal sacrifices brought in. What is it that Melchizedek brings beside the blessing? Bread and wine. Now, where do we hear about bread and wine again in the Bible? The Last Supper. Jesus brings bread and wine to the meal. And before the meal, they break the bread. And after the meal, they partake of the wine. So Melchizedek brings bread and wine to this event here with Abraham. Isn't that interesting? Now, he's priest of the Most High God. Don't you think he had a commission from God? God told him to do something? Melchizedek, i got a mission for you. My man Abraham's coming back after a victory. I want you to go out there and meet him. And I want you to take this. So he brings it. Does Melchizedek know why he's bringing this? I wonder if Melchizedek, Melchizedek says, well, why would I bring bread and wine? We never brought that to a, to a sacrifice before. We never brought that to a... Why am I... Bring, I wonder if he asked that or if he said, okay. But notice this, out of the three verses of Scripture that we have about Melchizedek, it gets a mention. We get a mention in there. He brought bread and wine which is direct correlation to what Jesus brings to the Last Supper, which brings in the cross into this whole thing. Now, we'll, we'll be coming back to this verse of Scripture later on. It's too easy for me to get ahead of myself and start working into next week's stuff since I already, <laughs> I already sat down and was working on, on all that stuff. But we're going to stay here and, and keep up with, with this one. Now let's take a look at Melchizedek's blessing. It's on Abraham. Notice that nothing is said about the king of Sodom. When Melchizedek comes out, I'm sorry, not the king of, uh, yes, king of Sodom or Gomorrah. This is anything about the other kings. The king of Sodom comes out, doesn't mention him. All he talks about is Abraham. Now I put this in your outline. This is a real important lesson. Three verses are given on Melchizedek. Only three verses are given about what happened between him and Abraham. How many verses are given on the battle that Abraham had against the five kings? Maybe we can say one because it happened. <laughs> That's about it though, right? Three verses are talked about with Melchizedek. Out of that, we have that he showed up and that he blessed Abraham, that he brought the bread and wine and who he is, that he's the king of Salem and that he's the, the high priest. I mean, that's, that's really it. Apparently, that's all we needed to know. But if, when he comes on out, he does, if he does address the king of Sodom, we don't know it. All we know that he does is he addresses Abraham. So I put this in your outline because I'm going with what the Word of God has to say here. It is better to bless what is of God than to condemn what is not. It is better to bless what is of God than to condemn what is not. How many Christians do you know that love to go around and condemn things? They condemn this minister. They condemn this activity. They condemn this thing over here. It is, we got a lot, whole lot of time and attention spent on condemnation. 
In fact, a lot of times Christians, we spend a whole lot of our time listening to, we talked about this before in the Sunday mornings, listening to the accuser of the brethren and spouting out what he says about our brethren instead of going around blessing. How easy would it be for the king of Salem to say about the king of Sodom, you sinner? Because obviously they were. (laughs) I mean, God's going to send his own judgment down on here. In just a little bit, we're going to send judgment down upon these, upon these, uh, these folks. So certainly that was going on at this point. But he has no words for the king of Sodom. As far as we can tell, he doesn't even address them. It is far better that you bless what is of God than you condemn what is not. But I'll tell you what, there's, it is, there's more appeal in condemning than there is in blessing. And we've got to make sure that we, uh, we don't get into that. It's a whole lot easier for churches and things to teach what you shouldn't do than what you should. It is better to bless what is of God than to condemn what is not. So I put this note in your outline. What is your attention drawn to? When you look out over the things that happen during the day, during the week, is your attention brought to the things that are blessed of God or to the things that are not of God? I'll tell you what, there's a whole lot of evil going on in this world and our attention can be focused on what's going on that's evil or what we don't like going on with church people or what we don't like going on with this uh, particular view and this particular thing over here. All right, we've got more on this. We're going to get into this in just a little bit, but let's just finish off the chapter here and see what happens on the rest of it. Now, the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich, except only that the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So apparently there was a portion of the spoils of, the, of theirs, and these were in other people's hands. But as, as far as Abraham was concerned, I'm not taking anything that was yours. They're not even his payment for getting it all back, not even a reward. Nope, you take it all. I don't want you saying that Abraham, you made Abraham rich. Now think about this. Abram... At the time, had flocks, he had livestock, he had lots of stuff. In fact, it got to be to the point that he had so much, and Lot had so much, that they couldn't coexist together. So they split up, and Lot took his and went someplace else, and Abraham kept his. He's already got so much stuff, he can't coexist in an area and feed all his flocks with Lot. And then he goes, and he gets all the stuff from these four kings and all the stuff that they had captured in the battles before Sodom and Gomorrah. And that is all now in Abram's possession. He went from being a very rich person to being an exceedingly rich person. Can you imagine having the wealth of four kings given to you? And then the wealth of the kings they conquered. And then all the livestock. And all the other stuff that came along with it. All that just came to Abraham. 
in one day. Just because they took Lot, let's go get them. Let's go get him. <laughs> let's take him out. He took, he took my nephew. Didn't matter that the nephew was in a place he shouldn't be. That didn't seem to bother Abraham at all. It, didn't also, it also didn't seem to bother God because he still showed up and, and helped him out in this battle. Now, there are three main areas that should command our focus in Scripture and the role that we step in. Three main areas that you will see that, that command our focus. Here's the first one. The first is the role of a king. The role of a king. The king, his main focus, his main job is to protect. The main job of a king is to protect. When they went out in the children of Israel and looked for a king, what was the thing they were looking for? A warrior who would lead them out in the battle. That's the main thing they were looking for. Why? Because the main job of a king is to protect. In order to do that, the king collects taxes so that he can build walls on cities, so that he can build defenses, so that he can build fortifications, and so that he can pay an army. The main job of a king is to protect his people. He establishes laws for the purpose of having order, again, to protect his people. He determines what is right and what is wrong in order to protect his people. So you, you can sum up all the job of a king is basically to protect. That's the job of a king. We look at things being expanded and, you know, we have other things that, that uh, presidents or kings or things are, are doing. Whether they should be doing those things or not <laughs> is, is another thing. But there are certain main roles that, that we are to do. And that is, that is the main one. The king is to protect or the leader of the country is to protect. Here's the second one. That's the role of the priest. The role of the priest is to bless. That's the role of the priest. The priest is to bring people into a blessing. The priest would teach people about the ways of God. The priest would offer sacrifice to make an atonement, to, make, uh, uh, to repair whatever was going on between man and God. The priest would step into that role so that once you stepped in that role, then that you were able to be blessed by God. If there was a problem between God and you, you wouldn't get blessed. So the main role of a priest was to open up the door for blessing and to pronounce blessings on his own, which is what Melchizedek did. He come out here and he, he, he pronounces the blessing. We got one more role for you. And it is the role of a prophet. The role of a prophet is to warn. The role of a king is to protect. The role of a prophet is to warn. And the role of a priest is is to bless. Three main roles that we were, are to see. Now in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, that's a, 
We, got, we all know the song. We got this verse down. <laughs> I can see some of you mouthing it as you're going along. It's hard to start this verse without finishing it on your own, isn't it? We just, this is a great verse. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, which means you are kings and priests, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are a royal priesthood. We are to fulfill those areas of king, which is to protect, and priest, which is to bless. What about that third area? It seems to me that most Christians find it easier to be a prophet than to do a king or a priest. Because most Christians are constantly giving out warnings be careful, brother so-and-so over there. Be careful of this. If you keep doing that, this is going to happen. We get more into the area of warning than we do into the area of blessing and the area of protection. Why is that? Now, are we supposed to be operating in the area of pre, uh, profit? Absolutely. But the area of profit is at whose discretion? The head of the church. It's his discretion. You don't pick, I'm going to be a prophet. It's selected. God calls different ones to be prophets. And then they would be the, the, the warning ones. But it seems that so many times, folks, we spend more time in the third area, warning, than we do in the other two. King and priest. We, we know from this verse, we, we quote this, we sing the song constantly. I'm a royal priesthood. Which means I am here to protect and I am here to bless. And yet out of our mouths come less blessing and more profit. Why is that? Why are we so drawn to a role that all of us, when we quote that verse of Scripture in First Peter 2 and verse 9, know it's not in there. We're called to be a priest. We're called to be king. Now, we're not getting into all the, all the roles of a priest here yet tonight. We are going to get into all the roles of a priest. The main predominant one is uh, being a blessing. That's the main thing that we are hard to do. Now, here's the thing that I think is most interesting. In this section of Scripture that we read, we hear Lot is taken as one of the prisoners. They come to Abraham. Abraham hears about it. And Abraham gets his 318 men and they march off after him, conquer him, have the victory, and then come on back. And then Melchizedek is sent out to meet him. I'm, I'm 95% sure Melchizedek is sent out by God to meet him. That's why the bread and the wine... Well, here's my question, because if this is what Christians today, this would not happen this way. If it was Christians today, it would not go on this way. The way this would happen today is that Abraham would train up his 318 servants 
and they would make a trip over to Salem and ask for Melchizedek to bless them so that they can go into battle and have the victory. How many of you know that's what would happen? But that doesn't happen here, does it? When does the blessing come? After the victory. Why does the blessing come after the victory? I put this in your outline for you. We focus on the need of, for God's blessing going into the battle in order to gain the victory. We very often focus on that. If we're going to go into any kind of a battle, how many of us are calling up, brothers and sisters? Pray with me. Bless me. <laughs> Come on. Let's go. That's what we're doing. We focus on the need for God's blessings going into the battle in order to gain the victory instead of the blessings available because of the victory. Now, this is, this is in your outline. Don't miss this one. To us, Christians today, the victory is the blessing. Isn't that right? To us today, the victory is the blessing. So think about this. Abraham, already a rich guy, goes up and takes on four kings, gets all their stuff, gets all the stuff they conquered, everything, and brings it all back with them. How many of you see that as the blessing? But the blessing comes after. The blessing doesn't happen in the battle. The, the blessing is not the battle. The blessing comes after the battle. I mean, I'm thinking about this and this kind of just blowing me away. So, wait a minute. All, every, every Christian today, if we went into a battle like that and came out of there with all that stuff, how many of us are saying, glory to God, I have been blessed? That's what we're saying. I have been blessed. And yet Abraham, in this scripture, three, script, three verses are given. Three verses are given to let us know that the blessing comes after the battle, not before. That's just, that's just different for us. Now, I put this in your outline for you too. To Abraham and Melchizedek, it only opened the door for the blessing. To Abraham and Melchizedek, the victory over the four kings only opened the door to the blessing. It was not the blessing. It opened the door to the blessing. Go back over to verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. The victory that Abraham obtained from the four kings, the stuff, the blessings that he came, where does it come from? All the stuff that he got, it comes from the earth. Everything those kings had came from the earth. But the blessing from Melchizedek is from him who has the, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Where do you think the better stuff is? On heaven or on earth? 
the victory that Abraham obtains opens up for him not just the blessings of the earth, but the blessings of heaven. But most times, we want the blessings before we go into battle and never look for the blessing that came as a result of the battle. We need prayer and agreement and help to go into the battle. We never think of what comes as a result of the battle. Abraham does not seek after this. And he knows him. This, this Melchizedek is not, un, this is not the first time Abraham meets him. They don't come up here and say, Hi, who are you? Oh, I'm the king of Salem. Also happened to be the high priest. Oh, wow, it's great to meet you. No, Abraham's been in this territory for a little while. He knows who this king is. He also knew who the king of Sodom was. That's why he said the things about the king of Sodom. I'm not taking your money because I know what you're going to say. Why? Because I know you. He also knows Melchizedek. Now, we haven't gotten into everything about these three verses of Scripture. Here's what I want you to, to get out of this one, though. I believe I put it in your, in your outline right there at the end for you. What to you is the blessing of God? What to you is the blessing of God? Is the blessing of God getting all the goods of four kings? Or is that just qualifying you to get the blessing of God? Do you see the victory over your little things you have going on as the blessing of God? Or do you see the victory as qualifying you for a greater blessing? Why didn't the king of Salem come out and and greet Abraham ever before? He knew he was a great man of God. He knew he was called of God. Why didn't Melchizedek ever come out before and bless him? Well, we look at this as a great act of Abraham. What a great act of faith. What a great act of dependency on God that he would take 318 trained servants and just go up and and take this battle on. And God says, you see what he did? Because he knows my power. Man. We can put some more things on him. Melchizedek, I got a job for you. Going out there, I want you to put a blessing on him because he's ready for this now. This blessing is beyond riches because at this point, Abraham has more riches than he can spend in his lifetime. He's got all kinds of stuff. What to us is the blessing of God? Do we consider the blessing of God when I have enough in my bank account? When I have a good job? When I have a list of different things? When I have victory over this particular battle, that's a blessing of God? Do we not ever see the battle as a qualifier to open a door for a greater blessing? Do we even know to ask or to seek after a blessing after the victory? Because we get so caught up in the victory being our blessing. Father, we thank you that our eyes can be opened to the greatness of Abraham and what you saw in him. A man who after such a phenomenal victory would look at something else as the blessing. Help us, Father, to expand our horizons 
to get our eyes set on things other than what's in this earth. To see you as the possessor of heaven and earth. And that the blessings that you give are far greater than we have imagined. Give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.